0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Francisco Weber. Francisco is CEO and co-founder at cortical.io. Francisco and I first caught up four years ago He was my 10th interview, believe it or not. Francisco, we're over 400-something shows now, coming up on 450, I think. Uh, And man, it's been a long time, especially when you factor in 2020, which was another four years' worth of... uh...
1: itself. yeah, absolutely. (laughs) How are you? Yeah, fine, thanks. So much better than the situation, sort of, so I am one of the lucky ones, so... Hello and thanks for having me once again. I'm super excited to be here again. Uh, was uh, as I'm told from friends who listened uh, to the to our first co-production, they said it's uh, quite legendary by now. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, looking forward for today. Yeah,
0: I think it remains one of our most popular shows. Certainly in the the year that it came out or the year after, uh, it was a very popular show and. I certainly learned a ton and I expect to learn a ton now. Before we get too far in, it's been a while. It'd be great to have you, you know, share a little bit about your background. We can refer Mm -hmm. folks to the older Mm -hmm. interview in the show notes, but, you know, maybe let's start with uh, an overview of your background.
1: Yeah, so I'm actually coming from natural sciences, so uh, I studied medicine in Vienna but uh, I was lucky enough to be born in an era where uh, it was a thrill to become a a computer nerd of the very early days. And so I got very interested in this. And while working a lot in research at the time, which cannot be compared to anything that the lab's doing today, but uh, we had these first trial and error phases of gathering data digitally, um, and then uh, doing the statistics and some database and stuff like that. And I tried to basically stick around that focus point where uh, the data meets uh, the silicon, basically. And in 2000, I decided that I've done uh, enough research in sort of the natural sciences, and I wanted to go more professionally into computer programming. I started my uh, first company um, as, a, as an open source uh, sort of uh, service provider, uh, which was quite successful at the time. That was, you know, the times when the, the Sun systems and Microsoft systems, which were occupying all of uh, business uh, computing, started to see some Linuxes and stuff like that come up. And that was a pretty interesting time. And then from there, I grew into information retrieval, as it was called in the pre AI era, uh, which basically is um, finding textual information in some large collection as quick and easy and precise as possible. Uh, Then I started uh, my next company together with uh, Daniel, who is also the founder of uh, CodecLIO. And uh, we basically grew a specific use case of the previous company into a new company, which was all about patent search um, and patent analytics uh, and these kind of things. And as it turned out, that's sort of the one of the most challenging areas uh, to be in when you do NLP, what we did at the time. At the time, there was no AI. We had to craft our (laughs) stuff generically. But what was a very good experience for me is to see two things which seem to be very opposed. One is astonishingly much that can be done by using computers on text, but also astonishingly hard are certain things that seem so easy uh, for us humans. Yeah, And that looked to me very strange as a situation. And my feeling was that the way how we are trying to do this by fundamentally using statistics, basically, will not lead beyond a certain level. Yeah? Uh, and, and I think, yes, of course, language has some statistical properties. So that's correct. And that's the reason why applying to words makes some sense at some point and it actually improved i mean uh, just uh, remember what google was in 2002 yeah i mean if you compare <laughs> this to... <laughs> and i'm not i'm not talking about the company i'm talking about uh, sort of the, search the, engine. The, the the search engine the technology yeah. that's actually applied yeah yeah so uh, we started Cortical in uh, 2012 when i had some sort of uh, loose plan on how things could be done differently and luckily, by being in Austria and Austria having a pretty good early business funding uh, and research-based uh, funding scheme where you can uh, apply for, I would like to build a prototype for this. And if you can convince the guys there that there is a realistic <laughs> chance, uh, they give you actually money. Yeah? And yeah. Uh, yeah. that was the birth uh, of, of Io basically, to get uh, some money that would allow us to have a, a bunch of data scientists and software engineers to build the first prototype uh, of our approach, which is a, of course, biological approach, uh, given the context of my uh, own background. Well, let's um,
0: maybe Let's maybe dig into that a little bit deeper, yeah. because I think that is one of the reasons why that... You know, earlier episode resonated so strongly with folks uh, yeah, at the yeah. time. And as I understand it to this day, Cortical mm-hmm. solved, you know, you're, you're looking to solve problems that many other people are, are looking to solve in the NLP domain in particular. But mm-hmm. the approach that you're taking is one that is very different from the generally pursued uh, yeah. approaches. You know, let, let's maybe kind of refresh on, you know, that biological inspiration, the approach, what that what that really means and how mm-hmm. it's different. Yeah, so
1: uh, my big inspiration uh, for sort of uh, coming up with something like semantic folding, which is sort of a theory that explains the representation of words, basically, and fundamentally, but also all other kind of text. I got that inspiration from from Jeff Hawkins, who is, um, I think, well-known, especially in the U.S. as a a founder of Palm Computing and so on. And he basically uh, became neuroscientist in his second career, if you want. And he came up with something really fascinating, namely a formal explanation on the information science part, from my point of view. Uh, I mean, he does this very biologically. So he sticks uh, super close to what neuroscientists figure out about the brain. But the the, the very relevant step that he does is he integrates this back uh, into a consistent sort of, I, I don't want to call it model because it has nothing to do with models that we know nowadays, but as a mm-hmm. model in the sense of a conceptual model. Yeah, And in fact, that helped me to... Actually, find what the problem is. And the problem, and the beginning of Cortical I.O. was uh, very closely tied to this is that fundamentally, you need to do the first step, which is to find an appropriate representation. And that is what uh, semantic folding is about. It's basically not trying to use uh, statistics and to break any piece of language down in uh, sort of billions of variables and hyperparameters that are sort of tied together in an un- understandable way but to rather try and reconstruct from an information science perspective what our brains would have to do given the fact that i know that they are built in that and that manner yeah mm-hmm. that is that is the point there and uh, what we found out actually is the brain is sort of a real organ so it has to process on some real data The only data that actually comes into the brain as language is sort of acquired. So it has, by some means, to come in from outside. And basically the way, how how does the word cat actually look in my brain? That's fundamentally sort of the the problem that I saw there. And the approach we had so far is that we said, okay, we don't even want to know how this looks like, but let's assume it has... 25,000 parameters, whatever function that representation uh, is. Let's have some brute force combinatoric work on this until it fits best, yeah? which is amazing on one end, yeah? that you can basically parameterize stuff in the world and you can get uh, a representation of highly complex stuff like 5 million uh, e-shoppers. Yeah? You can sort of find out what, what they look like, how they behave. Uh, without going into the detail and without studying uh, psychology and, and whatever. On the other hand, the problem is that this is a real brute force approach. Yeah, So you have to fill enormous matrices. You have to perform a lot of uh, computation. So we start now to see that there might be an issue with this. So the way how we do this is basically that we drop the concept of a sort of uh, floating point uh, representation. That's the first thing to do because there are definitely no floating points anywhere close to neurons because uh, they can barely switch on and off. Yeah, so <laughs> if you want to do them, have them do uh, floating points uh, that won't work. So in the end, um, from today's perspective, I would say uh, we replace statistics and floating points with basically set theory and uh, geometry yeah so very basic sort of um, in terms of calculus very basic mathematical uh, ways of doing this Um, so what we basically do is that we try to find a representation for textual content so we call these representation fingerprints and they are like bitmaps basically and The interesting thing, I mean, it sounds simple, but in the end, if you think it through, you will find out it's quite tricky. If you have bitmaps, let's say 100 times 100 in in square, and you now throw in, let's say, 200 dots in this bitmap, the rest is uh, white. What you need is a function that renders any given word in a bitmap such that words that are similar render in two similar bitmaps yeah so as i said this sounds easy but if if you want to do this uh, for all words in a language yeah uh, it's pretty tricky and the other thing is that based on what jeff hawkins found in his sort of uh, uh, neuroscience based approach is that sparsity seems to be an extremely important aspect so you have two things you have a lot of neurons and only a very small fraction of them is active at any given time. That seems to be key. And this is completely opposite to the way how we do deep learning, where we operate basically on, on dense data structures only. Yeah? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so by bringing these aspects together and by saying for rendering uh, the data properly, what you need to have is what I call semantic grounding. So the variable that you have, the representational vector sort of that you have, has to bind to something real. Yeah? And again, in the statistical world, there is nothing is real. It's all only secondary information being derived from the real thing. Uh, but there is in the end at the very bottom sort of of the of the uh, chain, there is nothing real attached to it. And that has a lot of consequences that, uh, for example, all these problems today we have with bias in models and stuff like that is fundamentally tied to the fact that all of our models are only tied to the data that they have been generated off, but they are not tied to the actual reality that this data actually sort of represents itself. Mm -hmm. So a lot of um, (laughs) sort of conceptual constraints in this. And we have developed a technology that allows you to sort of simulate the way how the brain acquires information through language. We do this by listening, by reading uh, other people's mentions. Uh, And technically, we implement this by crafting a reference corpus. Yeah, So that's a collection of all the documents that contain all the stuff that we know our new brain to know about. And uh, this has, of course, one uh, advantage because reference information, to be more specific, is, for example, if I want to build a system that understands medical diagnosis, I don't train the semantic folding engine on medical diagnosis and millions of them because they have a, an enormous variability, of course. But I rather teach the system the language in which those diagnoses are described, basically. So. What I take are medical textbooks and stuff like that, uh, scientific papers on a specific domain, if, if need may be. And that material is transformed into a conversion engine, basically. You can imagine this to be like a transformer, just that it works on two dimensions. So that's where the geometry comes in. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that bitmap uh, representation, At the end, I can look at every position in my bitmap and I can refer it back explicitly to the bits of reference information that I trained it with. So behind every dot of my bitmap, there is a subset of the text of the reference uh, material. And every word now is a pattern of all the pieces of reference material that contained my text. Yeah. So, it's a distribution that happens. And that seems also to be crucial in real neuroscience, sort of. That's also the way how, how the brain seems to do this. Yeah, and there are um, a number of um, very useful sort of mathematical properties to these sparse distributed representations. Namely, you can add them together uh, and they still sort of, and they actually then become. The meaning of what those two words added together means. So, and that's the way basically how you can create fingerprints in the end of any piece of text by just aggregating the words of a piece of text, and then you get a fingerprint of that paragraph or a whole document, and then you get the fingerprint for the document.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, quick, quick question for you: At the you know time we originally spoke, you know we were kind of well well down the path of you know word to vec and embeddings and that stuff yeah. being popularized mm-hmm. uh even more so now but it was pre you know kind of the revolution in pre-trained language models and transformers and GPT three and, and yeah. one of the things that have that continue to get a lot of attention nowadays. How does the approach that you're describing compare to uh you know are we talking about solving the same kinds of problems as a language model do we have the same properties that allow it to be pre-trained yeah, yeah. you get uh, this question a lot
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um yes uh, we basically you can look at semantic folding like a, a language model um and uh initially we were of course working hard to get our language model to sort of behave in a way similar to other language models, because otherwise we would not connect to anyone. And we were very much focused on creating certain functionalities, uh, but mainly, of course, like everybody in the uh, early days uh, of high-volume machine learning, we were focused on precision. Yeah, That was sort of the golden carrot uh, in front of us. But uh, at some point, we had sort of a a pivot in the company in the sense that in the beginning, we were trying to solve more or less like a service company, specific problems that others have. And we were focused on that. And uh, so we had one project after the other. And we realized after some time or after a number of projects that Whenever we become um, sort of uh, successful in competing, let's say, with other um, approaches uh, in the business uh, area, we were always the first ones to be ready. So when there was a a certain amount of time uh, for a POC, for example, we were the first ones to have something to show to the customer and so on. And in the beginning, I did not pay so much attention. I just said, okay, we seem to be uh, more efficient or whatever. I don't know. But then I found out the big difference is, um, and I have to say, I might also not have understood it completely at the time because I was, of course, very much focused on our own technology and only just very superficially in these first years being able to follow what all the others were doing. So as I was working in a in a very different way, it was not natural for me to read uh, papers about deep learning because... Those were not my problems I had to solve and stuff like that. And only over time, I I started to also sort of uh, fully grasp sort of the extent of of deep learning, for example, or transformer models and and, and all of this. So over time, what I realized is that uh, in principle, our strength is uh, not so much to be measured as precision because in the real world you have things like uh, humans doing annotations with barely 60% precision yes okay <laughs> and and when I have a customer uh, who sort of asks me and 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 your system is uh, 99% uh, precise and I say okay if you create a 99% uh, precise uh, training material plus evaluation framework that's fine with me <laughs> Uh No, so we found out that it's, in fact, uh, the efficiency, that's the business factor that uh, uh, is actually helping. And as time went by, and uh, I realized that basically the statistical modeling generated improvement also very much by just throwing more computing power at the problem. And so I I saw sort of a, a problem grow there. Yeah. And uh, so we, when we did our pivot, as I said, away from being more service-oriented, even, I would say, a little bit researchy company, you know, looking for thrilling projects uh, with customers and stuff, we switched over and we said, no, we, in order to properly scale, we should uh, become a product company and we should uh, sort of package some of our functionalities in a way that we can literally sell them. So that's how we started. In the end, the goal became more ambitious because we said, okay, look, we need so much less data because having semantically grounded representations, a handful of examples typically is enough for the system to pick up the characteristics yeah? because there is not only 0.01% of the data that contains semantic payload, 20% uh, is the payload that we have here. And uh, in fact, as, as we saw many, many times in, in practice, when we were in a, in a more competitive uh, situation, we basically grow models of, let's say, same quality uh, like all the others by using 1,000 times or 10,000 times less uh, training data. And uh, we have been sort of refining this. And uh, in the end, we came up uh, with the first product that is used in contract analytics. So it's, it's, it's contract intelligence, sort of the topic, uh, and also the name uh, of the product, which is about reading and understanding uh, business contracts and extracting information in a structured way.
0: But before we jump into the contract yeah. piece, what was the, that factor in terms of the amount of data, uh, the data efficiency of this approach?
1: Yeah, so for example, our standard uh, English language model is trained with something like uh, maybe 100 gigabytes or so of text that gives it a strength as if you would throw bird at it with uh, the Google corpus. Uh, so the other thing is, of course, uh, a small corpus like that uh, is computed in two hours or three hours on a, on a laptop. Yeah. So that's the other thing. By the way, I didn't uh, mention our fingerprints um, are actually a Boolean. So when we train, as I said, we are not using uh, floating points at that level and so on. And that whole approach of pre-processing the data in a way that the semantics of the domain is basically in the geometry of the topology of the fingerprint. Yeah? So that's why I made the, the, the statement before when I said we are using uh, set theory. So a certain piece of reference text is part of my collection or it's not. If it's part of my collection, somewhere in my fingerprint is a corresponding dot for it. So there is a a very clear, direct link uh, from the root data to the actual representation. And the position that dot has versus all the other dots, so the the topology of that uh, space Yeah, Uh, the geometry, if you want, of that uh, patterns that you get, that contains the knowledge of the world, which I'm using the language of. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so that uh, basically, and that is super easy to compute for 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 a computer. I don't even uh, need a GPU for that. Precisely.
0: Mm -hmm. Again, kind of in in recent months, GPT three has gotten a ton of uh, attention. Some mm-hmm. like you're able to do similar things. do you compare them directly and kind of compare their performance, or are you uh, saying that like what you're doing is you know equally performant but much more efficient, or are there is a the trade off space more nuanced well
1: i mean the I think it cannot be directly compared because in principle. GPT-3 by itself is not doing anything, yeah. It's just you type something in and you get something out, yeah. Mm. But that's not a business system that sort of uh, is supposed to do something specific. I mean, we have all seen uh, a whole bunch of uh, really impressive tricks, yeah, where you type in you say what does uh, cat mean in French and it tells right. you in French, yeah. But uh, if you say what is coffee machine in French, you might get something wrong you don't know it yeah Mm -hmm. so it's that and that's not the kind of technology that you can use as such in a business environment
0: yeah you can define some you can define some kind of benchmark based on you know this representative of the type of some class of problems and compare directly the performance against a a benchmark if, if you happen to have enough material to train it that that's the
1: problem yeah and I think uh, if you uh, need to create a system that knows about automotive in, uh, industry in Czech, I'm pretty sure that the data set doesn't exist. Yeah? So there is no data out there of that size about using the Czech language for describing the automotive um, industry. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's a problem, so to say, because in order to provide um, a solution I need to have to create something uh, concrete. And with GPT-3, we are using the advantage that we use English. Uh, It's the most sort of common language. Most of the material by now, at least modern material, I would suppose, is English and so on. The other thing is nobody is exactly sure what GPT-3 has in its belly. (laughs) So... Um, uh, you cannot check uh, sort of billion page crawls uh, on, on the internet. And um, uh, I, I don't even want to know what, what it all crawled for learning what learned. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So, again, I think it's a very powerful demonstration of what you can do with, with statistics in terms of language. But it doesn't actually get us anywhere closer to getting the problem fixed that. A customer wants to filter out complaints uh, of uh, his customers out of emails, yeah, and he wants to do this in uh, ten languages because it's an international company. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's not something you're gonna solve uh, at least somewhere near uh, with GPT three. Yeah? yeah, and the point is, uh, and I have even not even not started to speak about efficiency, yeah, because if one training cycle GPT three model costs, I don't know, I've heard lots of numbers, but let's say $5 million, yeah? I mean, you have crafted models, I have crafted models. You know how often you need to sort of uh, chew them and, and, yeah. and recalculate them. Uh, come on, who's going to pay $5 million every every round? Yeah, And that is already assuming the data is there to do this. So I think for practical reasons, it's just not fully usable. I mean, there will be at some point, there will be... Business cases where what GPT-3 is able to do can be helpful, but look, if I make an allegory, uh, it's a bit uh, going with a sailing ship. You know, it can be a big sailing ship, but in the end, you have to go where the wind goes. Yeah, it's not you who says. Uh, and what we are building is a motorboat. Yeah, so that you say I want to go there, and you steer there, and you steer there at the speed that you want that you or you can afford and that is i think the the crucial point uh, for applying ai to business in the same way as we have applied microsoft word to writing uh, text in the business yeah so this yeah. at some point this has to become the normal thing yeah uh, i mean i grew up in a time when uh, every phone had a cable attached to it yeah so you see just the difference that we make as we as we progress. And that's basically the reason why I think uh, efficiency is in the end uh, the key, because let's be honest, any or most of nowadays algorithm are, in my opinion, theoretically able to do the job. The difference is, does it take a week or 300,000 years? And it's literally, yeah. I mean, there are problems if you try to solve them by brute force. Uh, we might we we need still to build computer order to to compute this, yeah. Um, and that is the problem with combinatorics. Uh, if you sort of if you work in a in a too sort of uh, loose or flat pattern, you end up with huge combinatorics and very quickly achieve uh, the level where yeah, basically it, it's interesting doing certain things, but it definitely is not um, sort of commercially viable. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of brings us to this, the shift that you've made uh, in your business to go after uh, a specific application area. And it sounds like that is contract intelligence for lawyers and law firms. And Uh, uh, what's the specific problem there?
1: Yeah, so uh, basically the decision was to come up with implemented use cases. And the ambitious goal that we have is to make the system completely usable by the lawyer himself without needing any data scientists or AI expert or so uh, to do this, to allow the, the people to train their own models and to own them. Because a good model basically captures the skills of the person who teaches. Yeah. So... In some degree, I mean, there is no legislation around this yet, but that's sort of, I regard this as the intellectual property of the expert who took the time and the effort to actually train an AI to do something he should own. Uh, it's his child, yeah, or her child, of course. Mm-hmm. And so that was uh, basically our goal. But in order to do this, you have to be able and shield completely the complexity and, most importantly, You can't ask them to annotate uh, 10,000 documents, of course. Yeah. So that has to be reasonable. That has to be an amount that they used to work with anyway. Yeah. And so, yeah, one of the USBs, if you want, from our uh, contract intelligence solution is precisely that with something like uh, 50 examples that you annotate in credit agreements. Uh, the system, uh, and we've done this. Uh, then extracts you like uh, sixty different variables and items out of uh, one hundred fifty thousand contracts uh, in a matter of half an hour or so. Yeah, well,
0: is this is the presumption that you have the customer is taking advantage of some pre training that you're doing, or is the idea that your system is so? data efficient that you don't need pre-training? Or is there some degree of pre-training like baked in? Uh, the, the only sort of pre-training that we have is that we provide a language
1: model. So a system okay. that understands English legalese. And that is basically, uh, that's as if you book a lawyer, yeah? who He doesn't know anything about your business or about your contract or anything but he knows what the words mean. And then he starts at some point, starts reading your material and then he can bring in uh, value to the whole process. Uh, And that's the same thing. So the system reads uh, a document, but the actual model is purely trained on whatever uh, the user indicates. So you you have to sort of uh, select, let's say a termination clause and you have to tell the system, this is a termination clause. And you do this for... 20 documents, 20 contracts, let's say. And the, and the clause, of course, can always be formulated differently. It can be in a, on a different spot in the document and so on. Mm-hmm. But after like 20 examples, the system will get 8 out of 10 already correctly. So that if you continue annotating, you only need to annotate for these remaining 20%. And you can, because at any time you can inspect the data, you can precisely find out what kind of documents do I still have to add to cover that blind spot. Yeah, and then maybe at 30 documents uh, or 40 documents, depending on complexity, you end up with a system that it normally is far more uh, exact than a human could be. Not for one document. So in one document, the human probably is always super exact. But for 100 documents, human users are just... Uh, as I said, about 60% or something like that.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Part of that where you're able to to kind of actively correct data set deficiencies to address issues. Can you kind of talk to how exactly that that happens? Mm -hmm. I'm imagining it's related to the idea that you went over earlier where you've got this kind of this matrix and you're able to look at one point and see the data set that contributed to that point.
1: Yeah, so uh, by now, so in the beginning, we have uh, worked only using the fingerprints. And the fingerprints, you have to think of them as the semantic representation. Yeah, But there are many other aspects to language uh, like syntax and pragmatics and many of these things that are relevant. And so, interestingly, you can cover a lot of ground with semantics. That's, I think, in the end, the reason why our brain ended up being a semantic computer because the meaning of things is in the end the most powerful way of understanding. But of course, in especially professional language, there are also other aspects. For example, you have to know that a certain word is a product from that company. You have to know this. Yeah? So you have to make uh, also specific examples and teach the system very specifically what certain data is. But what we then have found out is by having that representation, we could still use on top of this uh, regular machine learning, sort of. Yeah. So we can uh, convert uh, the piece of text. So, like you use Word2Vec, for example, for creating a word embedding, mm-hmm. uh, you can create instead of a word embedding, you can create a, a fingerprint in terms of data vector that you give. It's basically the same. Yeah. Um, and what you find out is that suddenly even super old fashioned, I don't know, uh, s- support vector machines, yeah, start to work efficiently. So you can where before you need thousands of examples, suddenly you need dozens yeah, with the same algorithm by just having the representation of the data not being sort of randomly statistic. But by being explicit and being semantically grounded uh, in all, it's you can imagine this to be as if the features would have been uh, handcrafted, yeah. Just that they are not, yeah. But the kind of strength of the feature is is close to what a handcrafted feature is, and so nowadays we basically use a whole potpourri of pretty traditional machine learning routines so we don't need to build those huge models we build tiny models that we can build on the edge because we need so so little data to actually create them yeah. mm. and the, the, the whole thing is basically so we have created that product we have in the meantime created uh, also a second product which is about uh, semantically filtering and routing messages so mail for example or uh, Instant messenger kind of messages. Let's assume a, a large consumer goods company. They have, I don't know, uh, five thousand products. Each of the products has a Facebook page for a community around the toothpaste and around dishwashing soap and so on. And they have to monitor, of course, that they comply. Sort of, uh, yeah, they don't start cursing or whatever on the on the Facebook page. So they have to monitor this. And today they do this by having uh, lots and lots and lots of people. I mean, I keep forgetting, but I think Facebook, for example, they use thousands of people to just monitor the content oh, yeah. uh, of, of the site. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, And that's what, what we do with our second product. Uh, it's technically speaking, it's a classifier that uh, can classify incoming text uh, at very high speed. Uh, I, I will come to this uh, in, in a second. But again, the thing is you train this classifier with 300 examples. You show it 300 examples of customer claims, let's say, or technical questions or this or that. You give it a couple of hundred examples and the system is able to separate it even more sort of in any language. So it's not limited to one language where we happen to have a language model. This can be trained on basically any
0: language. And so um, you, you hard pivoted towards the, the applications themselves, or do you still offer the toolkit for folks that want to you know, build things from a lower level? Uh, of course. Uh, nowadays,
1: uh, the toolkit is uh, much, much more matured. And we do have a number of starting from university to startups to highly specialized niche players in certain domains who are using it uh, sort of by themselves. So they don't use any of our services or so. They're just using this uh, through something like a REST interface or whatever to to do. And and it's astonishing, I mean, what they do uh, with this. But on the other hand, there is also a bigger strategy behind those individual products. So the first product, uh, Contract Intelligence, is about uh, semantic extraction, which is used to sort of render structured information out of unstructured. The second one is a semantic classifier and the third one, which is sort of in preparation to be, to be moved over from our old uh, tool bench that we use to sell services over to become a product, which is the search server. So we have also created a a semantic search system that indexes fingerprints and allows you to find documents based on a fingerprint and not Mm -hmm. uh, a keyword. And, if you put those three pieces together, extraction, classification, and search, I would claim you can basically build any application, business application, let's say, um, out of that. And so the, the grand idea behind it is to have a technical platform like you know Microsoft Office, all you need for getting rich. Um, to have like one system, but system at the business level, not at the, at the sort of AI engine level that, that's not supposed to be an AI engine that's supposed to be a business engine, like you have a, a database server to store, I don't know, uh, your uh, employee files, uh, you have a semantic server that you use to keep track of the uh, PowerPoint presentations uh, on your server and uh, give people a warning if they start to create the same presentation over and over again, because they just can't find it. Yeah. 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 Like
0: <laughs> I, I think yeah. everyone can probably relate to that one. <laughs> yeah. You know, it never uh, to amaze me. I, I, I like to tease when I talk to folks who are working in search, I like to tease about just how mm-hmm. bad search still is. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's such a hard problem. And yeah. Uh, so many places that have, you know, you would think that they have a lot riding on it. You know, it's, and I'm thinking in particular, like e-commerce and, and online sites and stuff yeah. like that. It's still really hard to find what you're looking for sometimes. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean,
1: currently people struggle a lot with, I would say, the usability of the search. Yeah, But fundamentally, the big problem that you have is that if your data set is big enough, you will probably have something like 20, 30, 40% of the data that you cannot reach. So there has been science out uh, of this uh, saying that if you have a sufficiently large collection of text, basically, and you want to search it by using just uh, statistics, you know, the, the old uh, TF-IDF uh, uh, magic, you will only find a subset of the data that's there. And there is no way of finding the rest yeah. So it's not the fault of the search engine manufacturers. It's, it's sort of, we, I think we have reached the end of, of steam engines, sort of. Yeah? Mm. We have to switch over to other motors in search, I mean. yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, and the solution is precisely to switch over to a semantic approach because there the problem is easier because you can model the data with a fingerprint and you can model the user With a fingerprint so like based on what the user commonly looks for you aggregate the fingerprints and you get some kind of a representation of what the user is interested in so when you enter a query which is also converted into a fingerprint you will look for which are the documents that have the most overlap with my query fingerprint okay so it's a straightforward approach the first advantage is you have a generic order already So you don't have to apply ranking and, you know, all this magic that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And in the end, you can even re-rank in terms of overlap to the user fingerprint. Because an attorney might uh, have a different interest in a bunch of patent documents than uh, an engineer. They, They might even cast the same query, but they would expect something different coming back. And that's, you can only do this by properly means semantically modeling uh, also the user mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so that's the platform approach that we sort of pursue we we try to roll the platform out while doing products that's sort of the approach that we chose to have easy approach uh, yeah but on the other hand it makes sure that you only create uh, relevant stuff yeah i mean yeah. just yeah. ask a bunch of engineer engineers to solve a problem and you get the solution maybe but you also get so much irrelevant stuff yeah. that uh yeah you're irrelevant in a business sense of course also. yeah 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 and as if that wouldn't be enough we have uh, even started yet another angle to this because we have also started to work in the hardware space oh really uh, yeah so initially there was some research done and we at some point found out okay FPGAs are actually the kind of hardware that we need for our stuff. It, it's a, a piece of hardware that I can uh, super flexibly uh, configure, and I can make it work on bits, uh, and I can work on so many bits in parallel as there are in the chip. Yeah, so this is basically the hardware for our approach.
0: And is this the uh, idea to make the FPGA into like a fingerprint chip for these?
1: Exactly. So. So all the uh, remaining uh, consuming computations that we do, and I mean, the computations we do are sometimes consuming, as I found out, I have to say, uh, as, we, as we went, because we are always hitting the bottleneck of the von Neumann machine. Every piece of data has to go through that data bus. Yeah? But in reality, if I do an overlap of two fingerprints, all the bits can calculate their own overlap yeah I don't need to have a central processor doing this. and so the idea is basically to create computing memory if you want to get rid of the processor as a whole. And we have um, developed uh, two years ago a prototype which was based on our search engine and uh, the speciality of the so the the, search, the reverse index you would say for a normal search engine, was running on on a silenx alveo board doing the the same thing in hardware and the nice thing is that we could reduce it uh sort of mathematically to the problem how fast can you read out the memory uh, that's attached to the chip yeah? that's basically the only current uh, limit But the big gain, actually, that you get is you get a search engine that does not become slower when you have more documents. It's a search engine you have to add. If you have more documents, you add more cards. Uh, But you remain in this sort of uh, three clock cycle find uh, mechanism. And that's, of course, another kind of efficiency that you need uh, in practice. If you want to sort of uh, make large, um, large implementations. Yeah. Awesome, awesome.
0: Well, it sounds like you've made a ton of progress over the past <laughs> yeah. years now. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So we haven't been lazy. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. So um, currently we are sort of um, getting forward. Uh, so by the way, we have also partnered with Silings uh, in the meantime. So. Okay. Uh, That helped a lot because uh, they are sort of industry leaders and they're super well connected in uh, the whole Bay Area and so on. So that uh, helped us, of course, uh, getting well-known and uh, also have to say, you know, for a small company, uh, even in that case, a small foreign company, you have also to sort of get people believe in you. And so if if Uh they see that you have more and more, uh, big friends, that they, <laughs> yeah. they 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 rather tend to believe. Yeah, I
0: had an um, interesting conversation. This this was years ago. Uh, Long time listener of the show. We were talking about uh, at one of our first events, uh, an AI summit that uh, he attended. We we're just talking about all the different things that he like heard on the show and mm-hmm. went and tried out. And one of the things was the cortical product and. He did this proof of concept at his company where they do an employee survey and they wanted to try to find the interesting bits of this employee survey and kind of do sentiment. And they used to spend, you know, weeks collecting this data and then poring over it to come up with anecdotes. And I think he built some kind of sentiment analysis thing or some kind of tool using uh, the, the Cortical Toolkit. Uh, it's a public API, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, he was impressed with how quick it was to get something up and running yeah that's that's the whole point that's
1: what you need you need something that allows you to make a a, a quick uh, experiment see if that's applicable to a certain problem and if you see it's applicable you have just to redo the same thing with all the data with all the you know but uh, uh, and and you can get uh, within a couple of days uh, you can get things uh, up and going that's and that's where sort of the focus uh, right now uh, lies. Basically, is working in things like uh, the, the, the workflows that are needed for people to properly work with this, and 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 also to automate all of the data pre-processing that might uh, come along. I mean, you you would not believe. I mean, we have been really doing uh, a hardcore machine learning for years, and then we end up with scratching our heads on some PDF data and how to properly <laughs> read it out. Yeah? yeah. Because that's what you need. Well solve. the real
0: world is messy and that's yeah uh, yeah, yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Are, are there any you know resources, you know, new or otherwise for you know folks that want to dig into this kind of fingerprinting and semantic folding? I almost uh, don't want you to say because part of you know I've always had this theory that you're first episode was so popular because people would listen to it two, three, four times to try to really wrap their heads around some uh, uh, what it means. So uh, I shouldn't uh, ask you for resources so that folks can do the same thing here. No, but I uh, would
1: <laughs> Yeah, so we are currently recrafting our uh, public access because one of the biggest problems uh, we had is that we are still tiny. So we are 32 people uh, still are uh, scattered um, over two continents <laughs> uh, so that the problem was that uh, we had a hard time uh, keeping up the demo resources with what actually the, the state of the art we had actually internally available so recently we have uh, switched gears for now uh, so that when people approach us and they say they would like to try out this or that uh, we try to enable them individually To do this, but I have this uh, plan for 21 now to uh, make a new state of the art publicly accessible gateway available. And then it will be, of course, much richer with uh, uh, many of the functionalities uh, that we have uh, added in the meantime. Cool. Uh, Other than that, I mean, just uh, try me, drop me an email or so. I always, uh, especially, and I mean, people come up really with cool stuff. You can't imagine that they work on. And so it's so fascinating. I, I, I love sort of uh, trying to uh, not only sort of give them the technology, but also to sort of brainstorm a little bit on how this could be, because you have to think slightly differently. If, you, if your word consists of fingerprints, it's a bit different than if it uh, consists of tensors. So uh, you have to have a different kind of uh, look at things. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as I said, I mean, the fact that we also use traditional machine learning now, uh, depending on the use case, of course, but we we do on a a regular basis, but we use our own representation to train a transformer model, for example. Yeah, that brings in completely new uh, sort of perspectives um, into it. Awesome. Awesome.
0: Well, Francisco, it was wonderful catching up with you. It, it was overdue probably, uh, but it's great to, to get an update on you and the company and what you're up to. And uh, wish you you know, continued best in 21. And let me know when the new docs come out.
1: Uh, absolutely. So thanks a lot again for having me. It was a, a big pleasure. And yeah, I will continue listening to your podcast. <laughs>
0: awesome, awesome. Thank you. Okay, bye.